Open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 22. Joshua 22. We're going to cover chapters 22 and 23 tonight. We touched a little bit on 22 Sunday as we were showing a contrast between, in a sense, the laziness of some of the tribes to possess the land that they were given and yet showing a zeal to rise up against their own brothers and how many times there is that kind of mismanagement, uh, I don't know, misappropriation of our energies and the things that we are zealous for. Uh, sometimes we can be zealous in the wrong ways and not in the right ones. Give of ourselves energy-wise more to things that are not really beneficial and neglect those things that would be. But in chapter 22, as it starts off, it starts off with Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and said to them, You have done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. And you have obeyed me in everything I commanded. For a long time now, to this very day, you have not deserted your brothers, but have carried out the, the mission the Lord your God gave you. Now that the Lord your God has given your brothers rest, as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. But be very careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to obey his commands, to hold fast to him and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. Then Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their homes. To the half-tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given the land of Bashan, and to the other half of the tribe, Joshua gave land on the west side of the Jordan with their brothers. When Joshua sent them home, he blessed them, saying, Return to your homes, and with, and with your great wealth, with large herds of livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and great quantity of clothing, and divide with your brothers the plunder from, from your enemies. And so we see these two and a half tribes that are going back to the other side of the Jordan where Moses had promised them the land. They saw that land and they said, Moses, we like this. We'd rather settle here than continue on into the promised land. But Moses said, well, you are responsible for what takes place in the tribe or the whole nation, you have to battle with them until the promise that God had given to them is fulfilled. And so they did. They went in there. All the men of war went into the battle and into the land of Canaan. And this is seven years later. So this is quite a commitment. This isn't just, oh yeah, we'll go with you for the weekend. We'll help you move, you know, and then we'll get back to our land. This is Seven years spending that time battling, going from place to place, from camp to camp, returning at first to Gilgal and now going to Shiloh, which is now kind of a central place where they would meet. And after seven years, finally, the, the wars are done. There are no armies left in the land of Canaan. There are just pockets of resistance throughout. But the main battles are done. And so now it's time to, to allow them to go back. Now imagine, I, I don't know if any of them journeyed back for R&R &R in between, but this is seven years of being displaced for these people, these men who were fighting. That's a long time. And that, that's quite a, a toll to take or to give of yourself towards something. But we see here a unity. And it's important to recognize that because it's going to come to play later on. They are unified. They are one nation at this point. The 12 tribes of Israel, Jacob, remember, that make up the nation. And so even though they're going back for seven years, they have fought side by side and have been a part of this in so many ways. And, and as they go there, 
Joshua wants to bless them and he gives them words of encouragement. And, and you know, when you're saying goodbye to someone for whatever reason, they're going to be going away. They're not going to be beside you any longer. You always want to say something that's going to stick. I remember when my son Samuel was going into the Marine Corps, the whole family got together to see him off. You know, and everyone had something to say, some word of encouragement to tell him, you know, what he was going to do. And it was just when he was going down to San Diego, you know, it's like, it's not that far. You know, it's not only be a few months and then it, it, we'll see him again. But it, it was as if, you know, we'd been there for, well, we had for all his life. Now he's, he's taking this giant step in a different direction. And we knew it was going to take him away from his home and take him to different places and of course, now he's in North Carolina, but when you see him and you say goodbye, you always tell him some of the same things, moms especially. You know, be good, son, you know, take care of yourself, don't get into trouble, all those things. And in verse 5, we see Joshua, in a sense, saying those things. He says, be very careful to keep the commandment and the law of Moses, the servant of the Lord gave you. And what is the commandment? Look at this, to love the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to obey his commands, to hold fast to him, to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. It reminds me of Jesus' first and greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And that's what jo Joshua is telling them. Love, remember to love the Lord your God. <coughs> and how important is that? How important is love to be a part of that relationship with God. It's everything. <clears throat> Recently I heard a quote that was actually from, I looked it up, it's from Woody Allen. But it said, the heart wants what the heart wants. And his quote was from when he, you know, decided to leave his wife for his stepdaughter. And they asked him why, and he said, the heart wants what the heart wants. But you see, the truth is, we will do what we love. And if we love God, we will obey him. If we love something else, we will follow after that. And that's why, foundationally, we need to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. We need to. If we don't love him, we will not follow him. Constraint and requirements will only hold a person so long, but eventually they are going to follow after what they love. And that's the frustrating thing, isn't it? Because how do you make someone love? How do you, for you can't force someone to love. It has to be voluntary. And so all you can do is exhort Love the Lord. Follow his commands. If you love me, Jesus said, you will obey my commands. It's that process. And so Joshua has it right. He tells them to be careful to keep the commands, but he tells them to love the Lord, your God, to follow after him in that way. And so we see that they are to love the Lord, first of all, they're to serve the Lord and they're to obey the Lord. And it should work in that process. You love him, so you serve him, and obedience is a part of that service. It's not you have to obey, it's you want to obey. It's not you have to serve the Lord your God, it's that you love him and you want to serve him. That you're privileged to be a part of that. You get to enjoy this relationship, this dynamic with God. And that's the powerful thing, and that really separates Christianity from every other religion. I remember Sammy Tanaga, who ministers to Muslims, talks about this and asking the Muslims why they obey. And they say they have to. And he, he uses a, an example, well, your children, do you want your children to obey because they have to or because they love you? And the parents say, well, I want them to obey because they love me. And he says, well, that's the God of Christianity. He wants us to love him, and that's why we obey. Not because we're going to get thrown in hell if we don't. 
And we'll talk about that in a little bit as well. But because he desires that relationship, in fact, he's done all that he can to win that love. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. See, he's won our hearts. And the same thing with the nation here. He battled for them. He brought them victory. He gave them the land of promise. Remember him, to love him, to follow him, to serve him, to obey him. In verses 9 and 10, we see that now the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh left the Israelites at Shiloh in Canaan to return to Gilead, their own land, which they had acquired in accordance with the command of the Lord through Moses. When they came to Gileoth near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. And imposing means it was big. It was something that was visible. Now they're building it on the side of the Israelites. This is not on the other side of the Jordan where they are going to establish their land. This is still in the land of Canaan. And so we see that they build this big altar and it was something that could be seen probably from the other side of the Jordan. That's why it says it's imposing. It was something that was noticeable. Verse 11, we see that there is the wrong conclusion in what takes place. And we talked about this a little on Sunday. Verse 11, it says, When the Israelites heard that they had built an altar on the border of Canaan at Gelioth, near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. Just, boy, the quick conclusion here. Now, they're going to explain why they went to this decision so quickly. But it's amazing that they just heard, it says in verse 11, they heard that they had built an altar. Who did they hear it from? Who did this come from? It didn't come from the tribes, we're going to see. It, they didn't tell them. They just heard, hey, I heard that they built this altar. Now, they weren't supposed to build an, build an altar to sacrifice because there was one temple or tabernacle where the sacrifices were to take place. And so it was in disobedience to have another place of worship when God was to be worshipped in a certain manner at the tabernacle. That was their concern. All the other tribes, or not tribes, all the other people in the land of Canaan had various ways of worshipping God. And they had their altars as well. And so are you going to just now have altars wherever you want? Are you going to stop worshiping the one true God and start going off on your own? That was their concern. And so they wanted to make war against them. In verse 13, it says, So the Israelites send Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now, at least they sent someone out. At least they went to inquire about this. They didn't just go to war. Boy, have you guys had someone hearsay and just go to war? You know, I heard such and such about someone and boom, it's war. Because automatically you're assuming those things and you're talking about them in this manner and you're saying all kinds of things. And it can be humorous in some points, depending on what it is, but it can be hurtful as well. And in this place, if they would have just reacted and gone to war, it would have been devastating. And so at least they sent out this delegation to find out what was going on. Verse 14, it says, With them, with him they sent ten of the chief men, one for each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family division among the Israelite clans. So they picked out ten guys that would best represent this group of people. They sent these people out so that they could Find out what was going on. Now, it, what's troubling is how quick they were ready to go to war. In 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter that talks about love, verses 4 through 6, it says, Love suffers long and is kind, does not envy, does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, and it thinks no evil. But they were quick to think evil. And, and it, it challenges my heart when I hear say something, am I quick to think evil? When I hear something about someone, 
And maybe it's not someone who I, I find favorable, someone who I don't really have a lot of fondness for. It makes it so much easier to think evil of them. As opposed to someone who you really care about, that you're slow to think evil. Why? Because you really love them. Kind of like moms and kids, too. You know, you, there's some moms that's like, you know, Johnny uh, broke the window. Oh, no, my Johnny would never break the window. Well, here he is with the bat, and he, there's the window, you know. I'm pretty sure it was him. Oh, no, you don't know. Johnny, he, he couldn't do that. He's a very sensitive boy. <laughs> well, yeah, I know, but he, he's got a cut on his hand from where the bat splintered and, and when he broke the window. Oh, he, he must have been put up to it by someone. You know, it's like, okay, mom, you know, I'm glad you think no evil of your son. And then there's the dad. <laughs> you know, he did it. Okay, <laughs> get inside. We'll take care of it. But love does not quickly jump to the wrong conclusion. It doesn't automatically think evil of someone, but they were quick. They made that quick judgment. And let's be careful that we're not quick to think evil of someone, that we care about someone, we shouldn't automatically go to that place, especially when it's hearsay, especially when it's gossip. It's a sin. It's a sin. It's wrong. And if you're talking about someone, thinking evil of them based on what someone said, it's wrong. It's wrong. And I mean, can we be honest? We, we do this. I, I do this. I catch myself. My wife catches me even more. <laughs> She's there. You know, we just need to stop. It's like, you don't understand. I like talking about this. I want to talk about that person. I want to think evil about them because whatever reason. It's wrong. Can't do it. And we need to be careful that we're not in that class and in that place. It goes on in verse 15. When they went to Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, the whole assembly of the Lord says, how could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? And this is the concern. How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Was not the sin of Peor enough for us? Up in this very day, we have up to this very day, we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. And are you now turning away from the Lord? And so their concern is you're going to turn away from the Lord. It is going to affect all of us. Peor, a judgment plague was sent on the whole nation in Numbers 25 because they turned and started following after Baal. And God sent a plague until there was decisive judgment and then he withstood the plague on the people. And they still remember how devastating it was to the whole nation. And so what they're saying is, you can't sin and it not affect us, so we're going to deal with it before it affects us. That's their concern. Don't you remember what happened? It's vivid in their mind. And then they go on in verse well, the last part of 18, it says, And now you are turning away from the Lord. If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will be angry with the whole community of Israel. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and share the land with us, but do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord your God. And then they give another example. When Achan, son of Zerah, and this took place in chapter 7, acted unfaithfully regarding the devoted things, did not wrath come upon the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sin. Remember, they went out to battle, and I think it was like 36 men were killed in the battle. Why? Because Achan took stuff that he wasn't supposed to. And you're saying, you can't do this and it not affect us. We have vivid memory of how sin affected the whole of the nation. And Jesus said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. 
We see that in Acts taking place with Ananias and Sapphira, how God judged their hypocrisy. And we know throughout the church that when those don't, who follow or believe in the Lord don't represent him well, it affects everybody. How many people have used the Lord and his name to get gain, to accomplish things that are very selfish, have been deceitful, and what a stain that has been left to the whole body of Christ. And so they confront them with this. They're concerned about it. They don't want them to continue, and they're ready to stop them if need be. We're not going to let you do this. We can't. Don't you remember what that is? And what's interesting here, and it's a good thing, to have a memory of what sin does. To have a recollection of what it's like to live in that place where you are disobedient. To not forget so quickly that disobedience has a cost. That you do reap what you sow. I remember when I, I came to faith in Christ and I, I started enjoying just the richest of God's blessings and mercy in my life. I remember thinking to myself, I don't ever want to forget how empty I was before I came to the Lord. I don't ever want to forget that hollow terror that was in my soul that I didn't know how to get rid of. I don't ever want to forget that. And it's good to remember that we were lost. It's good to remember how blind we were. It's good to remember just the deceitfulness that sin ravaged our lives with so that we don't easily go back there. And that's something that they were fresh, that was fresh in their minds still. Guys, we know what's happened. We don't want it to happen again. And so they go there to confront them, to find out what's going on. In verse 21, it says, Then Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel. I love their reply. The mighty one, God the Lord. The mighty one, God the Lord. He knows. They invoke God's name. They are shocked that they thought this of them. And as they hear this, they become aware of what the others are saying, which is an important thing because reconciliation takes place, but there's a humble response and a recognition of what's going on. And when they hear these things, they exalt God. And as they exalt the Lord with the mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows and let Israel know if this has been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. If that was the intent of our heart, kill us because we deserve to die if that was our intent. You see, that, that, that's a humble position to take. They're not coming and saying, why would you think that of us? What's wrong with you? Man, we fought beside you for seven years and we leave you and all of a sudden you're going to jump down our throats and you're going to come after us. They didn't come at them in that way. They just said, if that was our intent, God deliver us into your hands. And how that disarms the whole situation when they don't fight against it, when they actually get on their side and say, we agree with you. This is a great way to disarm a fight, is agree with the other person. Now, I know that doesn't sound like a win, but it can be. If what the other person is saying is right, maybe they misread you, maybe they took things the wrong way or whatever, instead of saying, well, I didn't mean that, why would you think that? I'm, you know, and arguing with them, saying, you know what, if I felt that way, you'd be right in saying that you would be justified in having that anger and being upset with me. But I didn't eat the last cookie. <laughs> if I did, I deserved to go out and buy some more. 
You see, you get on their side because their side was right, instead of arguing against them and trying to defend yourself. And, and so they humble themselves in their response. They recognize their position and they agreed with it, that if that was the count, then may the Lord judge us for that. In verse 23, if we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord himself call us to account. Again, reaffirming that's not what we are here to do. No, verse 24 says, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you Reubenites and Gadites. You have no share in the Lord, so your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. And now we see it was actually the opposite. What we are doing is we want to stay connected to you. We want your children to know that we belong to you. And so this memorial here, this altar is similar to the one that you have because we worship the same God. We're not going to offer anything on it, but we are connected to you. We worship the same God. And we want your children to know so that someday they don't forget about us. Verse 26, it says, This is why we said, let us get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary, which is there in Canaan, with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And we said, if they ever say this to us, or to our descendants, we will answer, look at the replica of the Lord's altar, which our fathers built, not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord and turn away from him today by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings and sacrifices, other than the altar of the Lord, our God, that stands before his tabernacle. When Phinehas, the priests, and the leaders of the community, the heads of the clans of the Israelites, heard what Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had to say, they were pleased. They brought resolve. They were in agreement. And what a 180 this is, just this recollection, this, this change here, how they almost started a war just because there was a misunderstanding. And boy, how many wars have we started because of misunderstandings? You, you families know that. You know, I don't know how many wars have started in our family because I took something the wrong way or someone read me the wrong way or it was, you know, misunderstood or the tone was wrong and all of a sudden you jump to a conclusion and boom, battle's on. And here we find out, no, that's not what we meant. It was the exact opposite. And how great that they were able to come to this conclusion and saw their hearts. And it says that they were pleased with what had happened. Verse 31, it says, And Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, said to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is with us because you have not acted unfaithfully toward the Lord in this matter. Now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. Then Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priests and the leaders, returned to Canaan from their meeting with the, with the Reubenites and Gadites at, in Gilead and reported to the Israelites. They were glad to hear the report and praised God. And they talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Reubenites and the Gadites lived. And the Reubenites and the Gadites gave the altar this name, a witness between us that the Lord is God. And so they came to the conclusion, they went back, and it's great to see that they were pleased they had that good report. So the whole nation rejoiced, good. I'm glad they didn't stray away. I'm glad that wasn't the case. And again, we see that their heart was with them. They, they were 
not wanting them to stray and go far away. And so they gave the place the name, a witness between us that the Lord is God. Now, if you have a King James Version, the original King James Version, it says they called the altar Ed. That's what Ed means. And so but that sounds fun, funny. You know? A witness between, we'll call it Ed. Ed, okay. But that's what the name means. That's what the name Ed means. It's a witness between us and the Lord that he is God. Chapter 23, there's now a break. This concludes chapter 22, just that time of battling, the dispersing of the tribes to their various portions of land. And now we've got a gulf of time that takes place probably about, oh, 60, maybe 70 years between where we're leaving off and where we're taking up in chapter 23. So even though it's just a couple of verses in a chapter, we're talking like 70 years later. And it says, after a long time, that's about the 70 years had passed, and the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them, Joshua by then, old and well advanced in years, summoned all Israel, their elders, leaders, judges, and officials, and said to them, I am old and well advanced in years. Joshua had a good understanding of himself. He wasn't afraid to call it like it is. They estimate that Joshua is about 110 years old at this time. So he is old. He is well advanced in years. And there's actually kind of two portions, that, two sections that take place here from verse 2 to 13 and then verse 14 to 16. He kind of deals with the elders and then he deals with the nation. And his message is very similar. But we have to understand what's taking place at this place in time within Joshua. Here is the man who has been responsible for taking a whole nation into a land that God has promised, who has taken that on his shoulders, who has carried them, who has fought with them, fought for them, and had to discipline them at times, has battled to see the Lord's promise fulfilled in this nation, and he knows now that he is about to die. He doesn't have long. He's 110 years old. And once again, we see the burden of his heart coming out. We see the things that are important to him come out in both these sections as he mentions both of them his age and he talks about God's faithfulness. In verse 3 he says, You yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. Remember now, I have allotted as an inheritance for your tribes all the land of the nations that remains, the nations I conquered between the Jordan and the great sea in the west. So he's saying, don't forget that God fought for you. Remember how I was used to give you these portions that God had won. And he keeps telling them, God has given you this. He, he wants them to be aware of where this gift comes from, where this promised land comes from. That it wasn't just something they did on their own. He's reminded of all the battles where the hand of the Lord was with them. Jericho, when the walls crumbled without them having to do a thing. When they battled and the hailstones came down and wiped out more of the army than they did. How the sun stood still. You guys, God did this. Don't forget you need to remember and how the Lord used me to, to disperse these lands and to give you these places just as he has promised. In verse 5 it says, The Lord your God himself will drive them out of your way. He will push them out before you and you will take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. And then he says, Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with these nations and remain um, that remain among you. Do not invoke the name of their gods nor swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them, but you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. 
And so as he's coming to the end of his life, what can he say to help them not slip, to not fall? What words can he give them that will keep within their heart the things that God has done and what needs to continue? And what he does in verse 6 is give them the very words that God gave to him in chapter 1, verse 8. Be very strong. That's what God told me. That's what I'm telling you guys. Because I know what it's like to be afraid. I know what it's like to be weak. I had to take over from Moses, remember? And God told me to be strong. And I'm telling you what he told me. Be very strong. And then he tells them to not turn away from the things that are there, as it is written in the book of the law, without turning aside to the right or to the left. And so he's telling them, God has a right way to live, and don't depart from that. And then in verse 7, I want to talk about this a little bit. It says, do not associate with these nations that remain among you, do not invoke the name of their gods, nor swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. The idea of associating with the, na the nations that are around them. A lot of times we can really focus on, because the New Testament talks about this as well. In James 4.4 4 it says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. First John tells us not to love the world or the things that are in the world for all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life is not from God, but is of this world. And it'll pass away in all its lusts. And so we see this division between the world or here the nations that are around them and God. And what usually happens or what tends to happen is we automatically say, okay, the world is all bad and God is all good. Everything in the world is bad. You can't you know, watch TV. You can't listen to music. You can't go to the movies. You can't in some places, even play sports, you can't. And everything that's a part of the world is taboo, is bad, and you're not to have anything to do with that. Because we're so worried about that association. But I believe what he's doing is connecting that association with invoking the names of their gods or becoming under, bowing down to them. In other words, don't give in to the false beliefs of the world. And the reason I want to bring this out is because Paul talks in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, and he says, I have written you in my letter not to associate, there's that word, with sexual immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. Right? Well, if I can't associate with the world, what do I associate with? And so there needs to be a distinction that we make between the beliefs of the world and embracing them and the people of the world who need to hear the truth. Because not associating with the world does not mean you don't talk to people or have friends that aren't Christian. But what it does mean is you don't allow those friends to influence your beliefs and change your beliefs. See, Jesus prayed that God would not take us out of the world, but that he would keep us from the evil one. But he wants us to be here. He wants us to be in the world. We are the light of the world. You can't be a light if you're hidden under a lampstand or a bushel. And a lot of times what we do is we want to so much, okay, we can't associate with the world, we end up hiding from the world because we separate ourselves so far from the world. And pretty soon there is no witness, there is no light because we've disappeared. You see... The boat belongs in the water. 
The problem is when the water gets in the boat. And we belong in this world, but the world's ways don't belong in us. And we're not to be afraid of the world because the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. We have the power of the Holy Spirit to withstand. We have the armor of God. And so we need to be careful not to be influenced by the world, but we don't need to be so worried that we remove ourselves from it. And, and that's really important to grasp because that's what the church is here for, is to influence the world. The nation of Israel was responsible to make others aware that God was alive and the living God. And this couldn't be accomplished if they compromised. So they had to remain faithful to the law of God so that the other nations would see. As they would go on and build the actual temple, there was a place, an outer court, that was made specifically for the foreigners, those who were outside. Why would God do that? Because his intention all along wasn't to kick everyone out. Everyone, get out of my house. Out, out, out. No one except my people. His intention all along was to have his people be an example so that everyone in the world could come and see who he is. But they would not be able to see who he was if they compromised with the gods that were around them. And so his point in not associating with those around him, wasn't mean, I don't want anyone else in this nation except for you guys. I don't want anyone else to be influenced except for you guys. It's an exclusive club. What he was saying is, I don't want the other people in this nation, as he says there, to invoke their names or their gods or to swear by them or to associate with those things. Don't, don't bow to them because you worship the true God. And that's really important that we understand that distinction. Because so many times we can hear a message and they'll quote, I could quote you a million scriptures that talk about the world and, and not being you know, influenced by the world and, and the world being you know, evil and the one who loves the world and pretty soon we think everything's bad. And then the Christians disappear. Our music isn't influencing anyone except Christians. Why? Because we have our own radio stations. I remember a while back when um, I was working with the college. This was, I don't know, six, seven years ago. And MySpace was the big thing. And everyone had a MySpace. Now everyone has Facebook. But I remember someone coming up to me, well, you know, there's something new. It's called God space. I'm like, God space? What is that? Yeah, it's, it's a Christian MySpace. And I'm like, well, who's on God space? I've never heard of it. I know all the people who I'm trying to reach aren't on God space. You know, or there's YouTube. Well, now there's GodTube. It's like, well, okay, I guess I can post, you know, things on GodTube. Who's going to look at GodTube? The GodTubers, you know? I mean, it's like... <laughs> You, you've now just put yourself into this corner and you said, yes, we're, we're not associating with the world. Well, you're not influencing them anymore either. You're, you're not affecting them. And the, the point was, well, you know, all it takes is three clicks on MySpace and you can get to, you know, a porn site. It's like, you know, all it takes is one click, really. If you want to just put it in there, you can get there. It doesn't take MySpace to get to the wrong site. What it takes is our hearts being right before God and now influencing the world around us so that we can be in the world but not of the world. And Jesus prayed that he, we would not be taken out of the world. We're here. Let's use our presence to change it. Let's realize that the land has been given to us that it's our inheritance. That God is victorious. That no weapon's going to be formed against us and prosper. That he's going to give us victory if we will represent him effectively.
And, and so let's make that distinction. Let's go on. Let's finish this chapter here. Um, verse 12. But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes. That's pretty descriptive. Until you perish from this good land, which the Lord your God has given you. And that's a quotation from Numbers chapter 33, which Moses gave to the nation. Now I am, verse 14, about to go the way of all the earth. I love that. That's just so poetic. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises of the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. But just as every good promise of the Lord your God has come true, so the Lord will bring on you all the evil he has threatened until he has destroyed you from this good land he has given you. If you violate the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you and you will quickly perish from the good land he has given to you. If you're on God's side, you're good. You don't want to be against God. And a lot of times, even the way this is worded here, we can tend to think, well, God will change his mind about us. But really what happens is we move and change camps. In other words, God's blessing is constant if we are under his blessing. And God's wrath is constant if we are under his wrath and living in disobedience. God doesn't change. First John, it says, he who has the son has life. He who has not the son does not have life. And so we're the ones who move. If you stay in the blessings, in obedience to God, you will be blessed. But guess what? If you move away from that, you will then go into the other camp. And God's wrath is over there and you'll find it over you. Don't think that, well, I'm you know, a descendant of Jacob. I am part of the tribe of Israel that you will escape God's wrath just because of where you were born. It matters who you are. And so if you move out of this camp and into this camp, you will find God's wrath. And it will be there just as sure as his blessings are here. And it's important for us to recognize that, that God doesn't change. God doesn't want us in this camp, but if we move there, he has no choice but to put us under that wrath. If we live in disobedience, we will reap what we sow. God will not be mocked. God's not going to fudge things for us. Well, you know, God, my dad's a pastor. Doesn't matter. You're, you're in the wrong place, buddy. And you're going to get the wrath if you don't change. And so this is a very sober warning. And we, or I have lots of questions in my mind of, well, when, do, when does a person move over? Is there like, you know, I have this vision of it's raining over here and sunny over here. And when do you cross that line where the rain is coming down? And, and where is it? And I, I don't know, but God is warning us through Joshua. It's there. If you go over to this side, expect to get the rain. Expect to get the wrath. Expect it to come your way. Now, God might use it to move you back, which he did to the nation more than once. He used Babylon to bring the nation back to a place of repentance. God uses his wrath to bring about the good. You see, it's not like God wants to get mad at us. It's that we enter into that place of God's wrath, and he will still use it to try and get us back to himself. Because that's his desire. It is the heart of God. God is love. He does care about us, but he cannot compromise who he is. And if we live in a disobedient life, if we are living in a life of disobedience, we will find that God's wrath and judgment is upon us. 
well, so are you saved if you're, you know, living in the life of disobedience? Don't ask me, ask God. I don't, I can't answer that question. I don't know if you're saved or not. Who, who am I? Might look saved from my point of view, but I'm not God. Don't come up to me and ask if you're saved. You need to ask God. And so instead of worrying, well, am I saved or am I not saved? Live in obedience and you have assurance. Live that life so that you can know. Like First John says, I've written these things that you might know that you have eternal life. How will we know? Because we do what is right. We're living in the light. We are doing the things that God wants us to do. And we know the love and the fellowship of the Spirit is with us. We walk with Him. We enjoy Him. We are in relationship with Him. And His perfect love casts out all fear. Don't have to worry about it. If you're worrying about it, something's going on. Check your life out. Make sure you're not living in that place of disobedience, but are living in a life that is blessed by God. Let's pray. Father, just amazes me to think that we are hearing the things that Joshua spoke. This man who is so incredibly used by you and his last words, we get to be enriched by them. His last admonitions, Father, to the nation are now admonitions to us that we can take them and hear them, that we are to love you, that we are to follow you wholeheartedly, that we're not to compromise our lives in any way. And that you have blessing and you have promise for us if we will follow after you. And there is the warning that if we don't follow you, Lord, we will be under that wrath. That we will have your discipline. And Lord, I pray that we would be wise in the decisions we make in the lives that we live. Joshua was saying this for a reason. It was on his heart. He had concerns, and, and we know from history, he had reason to be concerned. Lord, there's reason to be concerned with each of us because there is potential in each of us to, to make the wrong choices, the wrong decisions, but there is also the potential to make the right ones and to live lives of obedience that are blessed and that are rich. And so I pray... For everyone here tonight, Lord, that we would follow after you wholeheartedly, Lord, that we wouldn't allow the, the world to contaminate our faith, that we would follow after you, Lord, with all our heart, soul, and mind, that we would love you more than we love anything else. God, that you would be our first love. And Lord, that we would enjoy this relationship with you that one day we, like Joshua, even after we've gone the way of this earth, would be able to exhort and encourage others. Even at 110 years old, he was still being used by you, God. Father, may we not grow weary in doing what is right. We do pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>